All right. All right. Hey, welcome to this episode of the DC Podcast. That's right. My name is Sean. I'm Russell. And we're going to talk about the Bible being evil. That's right. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, if, you, if you've been on the internet, mm-hmm. you're aware that uh, the Bible's evil, that it's full of immoral and terrible things. And so because of that, yeah. we can know that the Bible certainly wasn't written by God. It's yeah. just written by a bunch of human authors who were mm. unevolved, unenlightened, prejudiced, mm-hmm. patriarchal, sexist. Go on. White supremacists. Mm-hmm. Cisgendered. <laughs> Cisgendered, yeah. Basically, uh, one of the most common objections that I see to any kind of reference to Scripture is that, hey, the Bible's full of immoral stuff. You can't use as that as a source of authority in our arguments because it's immoral. Right. Okay. Even, even a guy like uh, Sam Harris, who's a popular atheist speaker, will say, hey, this whole idea of revelation from God doesn't work because I can look at the Bible, you can look at the Bible— and we can see things that are so obviously wrong and can be morally <coughs> improved upon. You just can't trust it as from God. Yeah. So an easy example of that would be slavery. Yeah, slavery. Yeah. So the Bible condones slavery, and we know slavery is evil. Therefore, the Bible got that one wrong. We just assume the Bible got a lot of things wrong. Yeah. Is that true? Does the Bible condone slavery? No. And not only is that not true, but that's one of, I would say, if we wanted to make this simple, three really common errors that uh, surface in this kind of conversation that as Christians, we need to be aware of. Yeah. Uh, And we're going to get to slavery. Okay. I think the first and easiest example we can deal with is the example of the, the skeptic or the critic of the Bible saying X, Y, and Z is wrong because they've mistaken something they see in the Bible for prescriptive. Okay. When actually the text is just descriptive. Okay. So prescriptive and descriptive. Yeah, prescriptive. The Bible is telling me this is what I must do. It's a prescription. Right. Descriptive merely describes what's happening. So you see that in the book of Acts. You know, one of the more difficult places for Christians to interpret, you know, how, how should we do life together as Christians? Well, you got to kind of figure out what's prescriptive, which is descriptive. And you make a lot of categorical, categorical mistakes if you don't get that right. That's right. And yeah. we can give, uh, so we're talking about morality here. Good yeah. example of something we see that probably most people are familiar with if they have any kind of basic exposure to Bible stories would sure. be Genesis 19, yeah. the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. So in that narrative, we see uh, two angels sent to the city to mm-hmm. basically rescue Lot and his family. Yeah. And when the two angels get to the city, uh, these, these wicked Sodomites see them. And basically go up to Lot's house and say, hey, these strangers, we want to basically rape them, send them out right now, yeah. or we're going to kick your door down and destroy you. Yeah. And so what does Lot do? Well, sends out his daughter. trying to protect these visitors, yeah. these guests into his home, he sends out his daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see people who criticize that and say, hey, that's abhorrent. Yeah. This Bible is evil. I'm not going to trust this thing. Yeah. But nowhere in that text do we see anything condoning Lot's behavior? Right. And so we would give that as an example of a descriptive text that shows the fallibility of Lot, that shows that his impulse was not something God was approving. Yeah. And in fact, the angel said, hold up, don't do that. Mm-hmm. And they struck the men blind and protected the whole family. Yeah, that's right. 
one of the things that I love about that story is that it reminds us that the Bible isn't full of perfect people. The Bible doesn't try to whitewash away the sins of the people. It, it just tells it how it is. That's, that's how it actually happened. And one of the, you know, early heroes of the faith, one, one of the patriarchs was, I mean, he was he messed up, man. Yeah. You it, know, you can say that whole thing about every character of the right. Bible, which I yeah. think is actually a really good uh, evidence for are seeing this as not a man-made document. Right. So when the authors of the Bible throughout the Bible are portrayed as weak and sinful yeah. and stubborn and foolish over and over and over again, and God is seen mm -hmm. uh, as, as glorified through that, it, it's hard to understand how any human being, if they were just making something up, would paint themselves in such a self-deprecating way. Well, you see the exact opposite throughout history. People write, you know, their own chronicles and they, they write themselves as the heroes of the story. You know, they completely wash away any of their sins. They cover up all the pockmarks. And I know we're going off track now, but it, it is significant, though. That's right. Yeah. All right. Number two. Failure to recognize differences in language and culture between, you know, ancient Palestine when these texts were mm -hmm. written and today. Yeah. That's a really easy one. And it's one that I think we see constantly. And this is the category I'd put the issue of slavery into. Okay. Slavery. The word slavery has a huge semantic range that we need to consider. Okay. So slavery as a... You know, modern American, 2018, I hear mm -hmm. that word. What do I think? You think of chattel. Chattel slavery. Or chattel, as the French would say, <laughs> slavery, right? You think about man stealing. You think about going over, getting a bunch of people, stealing them or buying them, putting them in a boat, bringing them over and making them, you know, uh, serve. Yeah. Slaves in America. Yeah. yeah. I, I, we have this entire -based slavery. historic, you know, precedent of thinking of slavery through the lens of kidnapping, enslaving, brutal conditions mm -hmm. of just in, just forced labor camps, basically. Yeah. Dehumanizing people, treating them as basically just livestock. Yeah. I mean, less than livestock. Less often. than livestock. Yeah. yeah. And so we have a, a horrendous, bloody history in our nation that we can look back at. And, and the term slavery yeah. always brings our minds to that. Right. Well, it's important to recognize that as, as evil as that institution was, that is not the kind of slavery that the Bible is ever talking about in right. terms of you know the, the covenant with Israel that God yeah. made where slavery is frequently mentioned within the context mm -hmm. of that covenant. That type of slavery is probably closer to what we would call indentured servitude. That's right. But to, before we move on from it, it's we should also note that the Bible explicitly condemns man stealing. That's right. Right. And you see really no whiff of race based superiority in the Bible. That's just that's a very modern concept. Yes. Right. So, so those are two things that would kind of automatically eliminate this idea that the Bible condones modern American slavery. Well, it, yeah. and along with that. So the idea of kidnapping, the idea of this this racial superiority and dominance, which I even hate to use that word biblically. There's one race, the human course, race. Right. We're talking about tribe and ethnicity, skin color. Yeah, that's right. All of that would have been condemned by the same law. Sure. So, and that's actually why the abolitionists who, who fought against the institution of slavery in the American colonies and in the United States pulled their beliefs from Scripture. That's right. So, okay. what was the difference? Well, the indentured servitude of the Old Testament was was largely an economic necessity of a people wandering around 
in, in a desert and then in a land that had very little to offer for widows, for sojourners, mm-hmm. for people who fell on hard times. And so the Israelites themselves, if it came to it, if, you know, after a number of, of methods of trying to uh, sell land or sell their labor had to, they could sell themselves into slavery to their neighbors, essentially. Yeah. They were still treated like human beings. And uh, it really was a mercy for the weakest and most needy within the society. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the idea of being a bond servant to the modern Western man is just abhorrent. But it's, it's actually not that crazy. I mean, it's like, I don't have any money. I'm going to die out here in the desert. You have money. Can I come live in this hut behind your hut, you know, or this tent behind your tent? And I'll work for your family, and you just give me food so that I can survive. I mean, right. it's actually a pretty humane thing. Now, there are some other questions about uh, slaves that were taken captive in war, etc. And, and maybe we can get into that in, in another episode. But here it's even important to distinguish that the the slavery that we see as described in like the Pentateuch, for example, is it's even distinct from the slavery of the Roman days. Right. Right. Uh, Roman slavery, much to people's surprise, was actually not that different from modern American chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was you owned that person as property in the very same way, but that's not the kind of slavery that you see in the Bible. That wasn't the the Hebrew understanding of slavery, the that's Jewish right. understanding. Yeah. Uh, next issue, yeah. very similar, is so the the Deuteron- Deuteronomy commands that in the instance. I where thought you were going to say Deuteronomic. Deuteronomic. I don't know why. I just felt like you were going there. Is it Deuteronomic or is it Deuteronomic? We're not doing this on no. there. Okay. okay. <laughs> so in Deuteronomy, there is a, a stipulation. There's a protection written into the law for yeah. women who are victims of rape. Okay. And that law is that the rapist, if he's found guilty, will yeah. then marry his victim. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times that that has come up in discussions with atheists and skeptics who are critical of the Bible who say that is abhorrent. Mm-hmm. That is so immoral. Yeah. That you'd force this woman to then marry her assaulter, basically. Yeah. Uh, and that is, again, such a narrow, modern, Western way to yeah. interpret that scenario. Yeah. Um, I didn't quite understand this myself until I actually talked to uh, a, a young Muslim girl yeah. who had just come from the Middle East. She okay. was uh, living in Colorado at the time, and she said, hey, that's that biblical law is actually the same as the law from the country that I used to live in. Hmm. And we, from a, you know, from a Muslim point of view, consider that justice. And the reason we consider that justice is because the biggest concern for a woman who's a victim of rape in our culture is who is going to provide for her, Mm -hmm. who is going to marry her and be a husband to her and take care of her. And that's because someone who's been a victim of that crime is essentially considered like unmarriable. Yeah, that's right. And so justice, what the woman wants is for her rapist to come identify as her husband, Mm -hmm. care for her, provide for her. Mm -hmm. Now, to a culture that has been sort of infused with individualism and romanticism, romantic love and, uh, you know, sexual sexual promiscuity being such a natural part of life and feminism saying that this woman doesn't need a husband to take care of her. That's like fingernails on a chalkboard yeah. to our ears yeah, that's right. when in reality to the people who this law was given to that yeah. was justice yeah, that right. was good and yeah. that was beyond 
uh, fairer to the victim of the crime. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this has also gone, it's, it's also been, um, help, help me out here while I'm on camera. I can't, I can't put my words together. Wake up. <laughs> here we go. Uh, no, it, it also has been taken advantage of. So yeah. there are Muslim cultures that exist today where men, this is part of their law. This is part of their concept of justice. And so what they'll do is they'll go and rape a woman. Right. And they'll say, that's how I get a yeah, wife. You're mine now. That was obviously, that would have been abhorrent to the God of the Bible who gave that law. It was right. meant to be something that was a help in the community if a terrible thing happened, not something to be taken advantage of. Right. Yeah. And so we see also that's why, you know, that the punishment for rape. Yeah. Should that should that perpetrator not marry yeah. that woman or should that woman already be married or betrothed to someone? It was death. Yeah. So the Bible takes that very seriously, yeah. more seriously, yeah. in fact, than our culture today yeah. takes rape. When we look at the punishment that we dish out to rapists. That's right. Yeah. Number three. Yeah. Here we go. So the failure to recognize the creature creator distinction. This is the third, I think, very common error we see when skeptics approach the morality issue of the Bible. Yeah. Failure to recognize the creature-creator distinction. So creature, Us. you and I, human beings, finite, limited, yeah, messed up, creator, God, perfect, mm -hmm. yeah, in all his ways. Yep. Okay. And so that distinction means that anytime we think, well, if I was God, mm -hmm. I would do it this way, we've already made a fundamental mistake. Right. You are not God. And if you step into that, that thought of, well, if I was God, I would do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. The mistake you've made is thinking of God as just another guy, yeah. which he is not. He is the creator of your life and of all life. And he has certain authority over life mm -hmm. and certain uh, divine prerogatives that as creations we don't have and will never have. Right. And if we don't take that into account when we read scripture... We are going to think of God as just this big, you know, powerful man, Santa Claus in the sky. Yeah. And he's going to look pretty evil. A Manta Claus. A Manta Claus. Yeah. So here's a good example of this. Wait, uh, hold on real quick. Yep. We, I, you said that, you know, I'm out of it. You may have to edit this part. What did I say? You said something about, um, it was a long time ago. Yeah, it was, but it was really key. Anyways, go ahead. What Divine prerogatives? No, no. It, it was about people saying like, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. Yeah. Ah, here we go. <laughs> here we go. <clears throat> uh, most people, they don't say, if I was God, I would do it this way. What they do is they say, this can't be God because this isn't the way that I would do it. Right. Right. You look at Romans chapter nine. Well, this just can't be right. That just can't be the way it is because yep. that, it doesn't seem right to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that was worth it. Well, well, give us an example, Russell. Where we see this most commonly, or where I see it most commonly, yeah. is God commanded genocide. Yeah. God commanded the people of Israel to enter Canaan, this promised land, and mm -hmm. wipe out all of the pagan societies that lived there. All of these uh, Canaanite populations from city to city. Yeah. They go and just destroy them. And what kind of God would kill innocent people right. like that? Yeah. Because I certainly wouldn't. No. My idea of God yeah. is of a peaceful, just God who loves everyone. Yeah. Well, here's the problem with that. Again, creature-creator distinction. Number one, God has every right and all authority mm -hmm. to snuff out any life he wants because right. he created all life. He says that specifically in Deuteronomy. We just taught through that in Sunday school. He gives life, he takes it away. That's right. Yeah. The, uh, the painter has every right to take his canvas and tear it in half and start over. Like Banksy. 
Like Banksy. Oh, that I didn't see that one coming. Okay. He just did it. He sold some painting for like $5 million, and then when they pulled it down, it shredded. Ooh. Oh, yeah. It was pretty gangster. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we see this command to to wipe out the Canaanites. Now, here's the other side of that. Why would God kill these innocent people? There are no innocent people. Mm. And that's, what theo- that's where theology matters. Okay. Is that... When we talk about the genocide, the killing of these Canaanites by God's command, we're talking about a people who are horrifically evil, mm-hmm. deserved death by any by any divine assessment. You hold these people against God's moral standard. Yeah, we see how clearly that they deserved to die. Now, the way you phrase that, it sounded like you just mean the Canaanite people. Yeah, this is interesting. So the Canaanites were pretty horrifically wicked. Yeah, sure. But when we look again at at scripture's teaching on this point, all of us deserve the same punishment. Mm. So the the Israelites themselves deserved God's wrath and justice, Mm. and yet they don't receive it. Mm. So the question isn't why did God allow all these people to be wiped out? The question is why is he allowed any of us to not be wiped out in the same way? And what is the answer to that? Why why does he allow us? It's his mercy. It is his sovereign electing love for his people. And it's the common grace that he gives people who may not recognize and honor him. Maybe he, they're they're not the people of Israel. Maybe they're just some, you know, foreign Gentiles as who we see in the history of the old Testament just survived. And yet God has not allowed them to fall under the sword. Yeah. And so we see again, this, this we're flipping this objection on its head. Why would God wipe out this, this people? Isn't that genocide? Well, Again, you're not God. Mm-hmm. I'm not God. God has the right to kill and snuff out life wherever he wants. And all of us deserve that. So the question is, why didn't he do it to us? Yeah. And so it's, again, that the failure to see the difference between creature and creator yeah. is the source of that objection. Yeah, that's right. Well, we got to wrap it up because we're at the mark. That's right. But we're going to come back and do a part two on this. Yeah, part two. And and so what we've been doing right now is kind of talking about the evidence. We're reasoning through these yeah. critiques. Um, there's an elephant in the room here. Mm. And that elephant in the room is the atheist who's claiming the Bible is immoral is doing so by holding the Bible up to some standard that mm. he thinks is the standard of objective moral truth. Yeah. What is morally true? What is morally false? Hold up the Bible to that. See where they line up and where they don't. Well, spoiler alert. If you're an atheist, you have no way to account for any sort of moral truth. Stop and, right there. You're going to give them too much. All right. So you got you to gotta leave them hanging yeah, so they the come back for part, yeah, for part two. All right. We got a book to recommend. Things you yeah. should read. Speaking of God and how we should think about him, mm-hmm. that's really what doctrine is, right? It's learning how to think God's thoughts after him. That's what we do when we do theology. And uh, this is a book by Bobby Jameson, and it is really, really good. We read through it in our Sunday school class. When we first got to the church, I just wasn't sure where everybody stood doctrinally. And what I did know, I wasn't super encouraged about, but I was hopeful Mm -hmm. because, uh, yeah, I thought God's spirit was at work. And so I asked all the people in our Sunday school class just to read one chapter of this a week. Uh, This doesn't actually teach you the doctrine. Look how tiny this is. It can't teach doctrine. Look how small it is. is. Look how big God is. Look how tiny this book is. What this is, is a book that is meant to help you appreciate doctrine. When Mm -hmm. I was a young Christian, I heard doctrine divides, doctrine is bad, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Then I read in the scripture, 
that doctrine is good and we should have good doctrine. And right. so uh, this this book will really do a good job of helping you develop an appreciation for sound doctrine if you don't already have it. It's also a great little resource to give out to someone that you think maybe doesn't understand or appreciate the importance of doctrine. You can read it with them or you can give it to them. I mean, it's only, you know, it's less than 100 pages. Uh, and it's full of uh, saxophone references. Bobby Jameson's a smart guy. He's a very smart guy. Hey, he's a sailor, a saxophonist, and a PhD graduate from Cambridge. Nevertheless, it doesn't read like that. It reads like like some Neanderthal like myself wrote it. That's not true. It's encouraging. Yeah, that's right. So get it. All right. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, catch you next time. Yep. I don't I guess I'll just never have a sign off. <laughs> <laughs>